26 films, five decades, two zeros and a seven, history's most iconic secret agent and a timeless gift to the silver screen. I speak, of course, of James Bond. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Listeners, thanks for joining me, Rupert Carmichael, on a series we're very excited about. It's called, of course, Building a Better Bond, and I want to start by thanking the BBC and the PBS for devoting the resources and time necessary for this enterprise, but none of it truly could be possible without the man here sitting across from me. He's, of course, the idol to many, a personal hero to myself, and the undisputed favorite actor to ever play one of film's most iconic roles. I speak, of course, of James Bond, and by way of that, George Lazenby. George, before we get into why we're here, I just want to thank you personally for joining us on this adventure. Oh, Rupert, it's a pleasure, you know, and I hate to kick this off on a critique already of your intro. It was great, but I do have a couple notes. This is a show about critique, after all. Are you okay with that? George, I'm okay with anything that you bring to the table. That's great. I wanted to point out that you said good evening, and we're recording this at two in the afternoon, and I was wondering if we're expecting people to be listening to this in the evening. It's going to be that type of late night show. What did you mean by that? To my understanding, George, why don't we get you on the phone with my agent with the producers of the show we will dictate when the show is listened to that sounds great you know as an actor i like to know where i am where the audience is what we're trying to do and if we're saying good evening but it's two in the afternoon i'm not in the right mindset you know do you want to redo it and say good afternoon instead or do you want to keep it at good evening you know i actually think that this context this discourse the way in which we disagree is best for the show to to be as is i believe the plan was to have this air on bbc radio in the evening but the producers are, are frantically, if you can see there, George, look behind you. Oh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. They're holding up a sign. It says, yes, this will this will air in the evening. Hmm. Pay no attention to them. Actually, do me a favor, guys. If you could just wind that clock behind you to 5 p.m., that would help me a lot to really get in the mindset of this. That's perfect. Is that good for you, Rupert? That's excellent for me, George. And I think you're illustrating here something that will become very evident to those who will listen to this series. You have a method. And that method breeds quality result. It's evident in the one sterling rendition of James Bond that you have done. It will also become evident through our mission with this show, which is, of course, to speak about the future of James Bond by reflecting on the past. George, if you would be so kind as to detail what you're bringing to this conversation. Besides myself? Maybe what yourself means. Well, as you pointed out there, Rupert... By the way, are you related to Rupert Murdoch? No, no. uh, You just have the same name, I was just wondering. Strange as it may sound, George, in the American naming custom, it's actually the last name that you must share with... In Australia, it's opposite. Is that the case? Yep, I'm related to every Australian George. Listeners, if you think you're learning something now, just you wait. George Lazenby, the way that you excelled in your role as Bond had a lot to do with intuition and instinct, and you'll bring that to the table here as well. But more specifically, 
you have developed, in concert with the BBC, a groundbreaking metric. Call it a rubric, call it a scale. It is a means of evaluation. What made bonds of the past great? And by understanding that, we'll know what will make the next bond great. Oh, that, that's a fantastic intro for this, Rupert. Of course, you're talking about the four T's method. I think you're alluding to that. That's right, of course. The four T's is something that I developed, as you said, on set of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, my only, one and only, the best Bond film. I did have slightly learning curve. I had never acted before a day in my life. And so I needed to develop a method, a rubric, if you will, to figure out how to portray this character. And in that, I was able to figure out an analyzation of every character that would precede me. Now, I wouldn't give the BBC too much credit because I came up with it and it's my method, but if you want to give them credit because they're producing this show, I understand that too. I believe uh, the only reason they are accredited with that is because you wrote your first iterations of the concept on BBC stationery. Ah, that's true, yeah. I didn't have any stationery in my arm, and I decided I would just ask them. They had no involvement in the production of my film, so I don't know why I asked the PA that day to get me BBC stationery. It just so happened. But then they ended up getting a writing credit. So the 4Ts method is, of course, the talk, the tux, the tech, and the teeny of a Bond. And I should point out that although I developed this working on Bond, you can really apply this to any popular fictional character and analyze them that way. For instance, let's take Bugs Bunny, Rupert. How would you like that? I'm on the edge of my seat, George. So Bugs Bunny, the character, you can analyze it through the talk. Is he saying the what's up docs? Is he wearing his tux, which is nothing, I guess. It's just a rabbit fur. His teeny would be the only analog I could think of would be a carrot. Doesn't mm. drink anything, but that's his extra little piece that he has with him all the time. And then the tech is maybe that red dress that he uses to fool Elmer Fudd with. So those are the main staples, and you can apply that to any character, but you can very much apply it to James Bond. What a fascinating look. Of course, it would be the George Lazenby way to have a perspective that is broad enough to help not only fans of the genre, but fans of all media understand and better appreciate what it is that they are watching. I'm a very selfless person, I think, and uh, that's why I developed this method to be able to help everyone. But also, it's, it's my method, and it's attributed to me, and sort of the BBC by way of the stationery, but mostly my method. And I don't think anyone would dare argue otherwise. A visionary, and your vision of the franchise is exactly what we're doing here. If you haven't guessed it already, listeners, our goal is to use this rubric, use the four T's, and use George Lazenby's mind to prognosticate who should be the next James Bond. After Daniel Craig, there is currently no one primed to play this iconic role. Will this station go unoccupied? Will this long-lit signal fade into darkness? Not if we have anything to say about it, and not if George has anything to say about it. So, without further ado, we will begin our trip through the past to inform ourselves, to inform you, the listener, and to inform an opinion about who should now carry the torch. I'm sorry, Rupert, you said beginning on this journey. I was getting my stuff packed up to go. My mistake, George. I meant, of course, a metaphorical journey, a journey through time. Mm, mm, okay, I through see. Through film history. So I should unpack this suitcase. I'm not terribly certain why you have a suitcase on this clothes set. We're simply in an audio booth. I thought they said a clothes set. I see. I'll see to it that the PA, 
who gave you that memo is... Uh, Fired? I was going to say reprimanded, but yes, she'll be out of a job. I appreciate that. Moving forward. We'll start moving forward by moving back. Back to the beginning. Now, astute listeners will know that before James Bond was ever on the small screen, then the silver screen, he was in the pages of Ian Fleming's iconic novels. That is a story for another day. Our story begins when the character first suavely stepped forth from the page into the television set, not the movie screen, as you might imagine, but instead on a TV program. A serial series monikered climax is where this all began. Of course, that term will come up later, but now it comes up now. George, let's begin by describing and discussing the very first James Bond, none other than one Barry Nelson. Listeners, you may be dumbfounded. You may be rewinding this program right now, unless it's on the radio, in which case you can't, but you're probably thinking, Barry Nelson? Who the fuck is that I don't know who that is. I barely know. Well, I was going to make a joke and say I barely know who George Lazenby is, but let's be honest, everyone knows who I am. Most people probably don't know who Barry Nelson is, and that's because he wasn't on the silver screen. He was on a different screen. I don't know. Rupert, a television screen, silver? I'm trying to continue this analogy here, but... Uh, feel free to abandon the metaphor, George. I don't believe, at least currently, that, that television screens are silver. I don't believe that they were at any time. So. Okay, so he was on a smaller, maybe black or bluish screen that we would know as a television set. So way back when, if, if we want to start there, in the early 50s, Ian Fleming wrote the first James Bond story, Casino Royale. Six months after that, Columbia Pictures approached him and wanted to buy the rights to James Bond. And he said, sure, you know, I need a, a new car. Why not? I'll give it to you. I know this because I sold him the car. That's right. Listeners, if you're not aware, strap in because who is today a sex symbol, a media icon, and a creative genius beloved around the world began in humble roots. George Lazenby began as a car salesman in Australia today still a car enthusiast. Is that correct, George? I love cars. I like the wheels. I like the steering wheels. I like the paint. I would call myself a car enthusiast, yes. And George, you say to me that your intersection with this franchise begins before your first time on a film? Yes, unbeknownst to me. I was a car salesman in Australia, then I moved to London, and I sold Ian Fleming his first car that he bought with the money he got to make the first Barry Nelson film, I'm uh, sorry, television program. Bond, to me, is just synonymous with film, and when I talk about Barry Nelson, I want to give him enough credit, but let's face it, he just wasn't that great, and he was on TV instead. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, George. Truly, that is the place to begin, though. How intriguing is it that an iconic film franchise began in such humble roots? Maybe you could say that it was the Cro-Magnon to Bond's humanity. It was the first time the American public and the world public was ever exposed to this debonair, dashing individual. Now, of course, in this first iteration, he was no Englishman. That's correct. Barry Nelson, as you could probably tell by his incredibly white bread name, was American. He shares that distinction with only one other man, the man in the room, the only non-English Bond. Now, George, do you feel any kinship with this man for this reason? Or is that something that it is, in your own estimation, a bridge too far? Well, as I described, I'm related to anyone named George in Australia, so I can't really say it's uh, kinship with Barry, as we don't have the same first name. But I received a lot of flack 
originally for not being part of the United Kingdom and playing James Bond. Barry had a tougher hill to climb in the beginning, I might say, because people had known James Bond as a British spy. And then all of a sudden he was on television as an American agent. I think when something like that happens, it, it throws the public for a loop, you know? Doesn't it just? And with that, let's begin our first foray into this topic, the talk of the first Bond, Barry Nelson. Usually, James Bond is synonymous with a charming, lucid, debonair accent. Instead, it was the hackneyed, strong-jawed slaw of an American agent that was first portrayed on this television program. Mr. Lazenby, talk the talk of talking through Barry Nelson. As you said, Rupert, people know James Bond from his catchphrases, from his suave attitude. I mean, just go back and watch my film if you haven't already. If you don't earn it, that's probably preposterous. You probably do. But just pop it in and see how suave I am and see all the amazing catchphrases I'm spouting off and see how people listen to every word I'm saying. And that just didn't happen with Barry Nelson. Barry Nelson, uh, he was just an American guy. He didn't have a grasp of the English. And by English, I mean the actual English language being suave and dry and witty. You know, I wouldn't say that was completely his fault, but it was a little bit, you know, he was pretty nervous. I can't speak to his character. I didn't know him off the screen. But what I will say is that this presentation of Casino Royale on television was broadcast live. And he was very nervous about that. And you can't be suave and entertaining when you're about to throw up all over the place. An astute observation, of course. Another thing which is synonymous with Bond is the well-rehearsed, evenly delivered, punchy, punctuating moments where you have the glib turn of a tongue and the audience swoons. Now, Mr. Nelson was not operating within the friendly confines of that narrative. He was speaking off the cufflink, if you could say so. What sort of challenges did this present to him? He was very nervous, as I said. As you mentioned, just one line from James Bond would cause people to swoon. So we actually had to have other people on set who were wearing earplugs who couldn't hear James Bond deliver his lines because everyone else on set at the moment's drop of a line would faint and swoon. And so these people, they'd be swoon catchers. All the cameramen, you know, the PAs, the director, they'd all swoon. And these people were earplugs would have to catch him. And that just didn't happen with Barry. You know, he, he didn't have the opportunity for that. Known as the swoonless wonder, Barry Nelson was just not prepared to take the mantle of such a complicated role. That is not to say Barry Nelson is without his own merits as an actor. Of course, he later went on to play a memorable role in the iconic film The Shining, as well as many other beloved moments in American cinema. But these truly were humble origins. Can you speak to any attempt prototypical as they may have been for Mr. Nelson to attempt his Bondisms. He is attributed with never reading the book. And so if that speaks to his, his preparation, I don't know what else would. But then he also had the uphill challenge of being alongside the great Peter Lorre. And Peter Lorre was the villain and he was the first on the call sheet. And then Barry Nelson preceded him. So if you're the hero of a film and the villain is above you, I think that takes a slight dig at your ego already, you know? Doesn't it just? And I think this is a, a, an important moment to speak to because the mythos of Bond is that the good guy always wins. James Bond is undefeatable. He is incorruptible. He is, to put it simply, the best. But his best was not good enough as he was billed second best. 
in this original iteration. Do you think this had a psychological impact on his performance? I think it did. Probably in retrospect, he could have read the book. People thought that his performance was lacking because it wasn't the James Bond they knew. It wasn't by the book. But people can also think when a performance is too much by the book, it's bad. I'll give you an example of this. A little bit after I was James Bond, I was cast in a Broadway production of Catcher in the Rye. I was supposed to be the titular catcher in the Rye. This is interesting. I didn't anticipate the conversation going this way. Please, George, tell us, what did you learn? The entire performance, rehearsing, people would say, you know, why isn't George showing up? What's he doing? And then we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he was James Bond. He's the best actor in the world, whatever. But to me, I thought, well, we have the book, Catcher in the Rye. We don't need to rehearse it. Everything's right there, you know? We don't have to rehearse something that's already written down. And so it's premiere night. The curtain goes up. I walk out and I just read the book, Catcher in the Rye. You want to know what the headline was the next day, Rupert? I'm waiting with bated breath, George. Mixed reviews. You know, some people loved it because it really followed the book exactly because I was reading it verbatim and some people hated it. I'll give you another example. Right after that, I was cast in a Broadway production of the film Cocktail starring Tom Cruise. You know what the headline for that one was? Mixed reviews. But everybody loved it. They were just talking about all the mixed drinks I was making on stage. So do you understand my point here? I thought I did. Now I'm not so certain. What I think you're saying though, George, and please correct me if I am wrong, you are saying sometimes it's best to take what you are given and use it to your advantage. Exactly. Barry Nelson made a critical error when he neglected to do exactly that. He abandoned the source material and as such, his already dissonant portrayal as an American agent was compounded. And when you say source material, if you think about the James Bond franchise, every single movie, you have more and more source material to work off of. All he had was one book, so you have to give him the benefit of the doubt in that regard. But also, he could have just read the fucking book, you know. Harsh but merciful critique coming from the best in the biz of Bond. When we talk about source material, I think one material that is synonymous with the franchise is, of course, high-quality cotton polyester blend. The type of material that creates structure, a presentation, a tuxedo. The very first exposure to James Bond that any human being had visually was seeing Barry Nelson in the original tux, in the original depiction, and every time after that, it is, again, the first thing that they are introduced to when a new Bond takes the screen. First impressions are everything, and the clothes make the man, George. Speak to Barry Nelson's tuxedo. I would love to, and I would like to point out, too, that this is the second T. So we've got talk, we're moving on to tux. I just want to keep people up to speed, Rupert, you know, you're moving at the speed of light here. If I were to offer another critique, it would just be really slow down, really drink it in, and let people understand what the hell we're talking about here, because this is pretty important shit. I'll heed to your pace, George. By the way, are you related to Rupert Grint from the Harry Potter franchise? Again, George, uh, no, I'm, I'm not related to my knowledge to any Rupert in this country or, or abroad. Just checking. Okay, well, back to the tux. As you said, you can judge a book by its cover. And when James Bond walks on the screen immediately, people are going to have an impression of what he should be and who he should look like. Until Barry Nelson came on the screen, anyone ever had was just an illustration of what James Bond was. So he was the first incarnation of what James Bond was. And I can tell you, it wasn't great. Expound on that. Now, I think at least 
spiritually, the idea of the debonair, well-dressed agent was represented in the original Casino Royale on Climax. Do you have a different interpretation, George? I do. He walked on screen, and immediately he just looked like a vice principal in a men's warehouse a suit. You know, it wasn't even tuxedo. Fascinating. Maybe this is the opportunity we have been craving to dive into the Lazenby experience in as much as what is a tuxedo. George, I'm sure you have opinions. What is the difference between your common, as you say, clearance rack, run-of-the-mill vice principal's attire and a proper tuxedo? Proper tuxedo, you gotta have a nice cut of the jacket. You're going to have a cummerbund. You might have a great set of buttons running down the placket. You'll have a bow tie. All Barry Nelson had was just a blazer, a tie. Ill-fitting 50s attire. And I'm sure people know exactly what I mean. You know, the clothes of the 1950s, they didn't fit the body properly. They were all off, you know? And then when you get to the 60s and you see someone like Sean Connery or someone like myself wearing this thing, it just fits like a glove. It fits perfectly. We're not wearing a costume. We are James Bond. Barry Nelson was just a guy who was wearing a suit. Mm, harsh marks for Mr. Nelson there. But when you go and study the tape, and we have the tape laid out here on the table, you can actually study it. Someone suggested originally, George, if you remember, that we have a video playing the scenes which we were speaking about. And you disagreed. You wanted the actual film yes. laid out end-to-end across these tables. And I'll tell you why that was. That was exactly for this reason of the discussion of Tux. Because in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, my James Bond film, I, I don't feel like I have to keep reiterating this because people know who, what that is, but I will. On my James Bond film, in every single scene, it would be a different tuxedo. I would have them change out the tuxedo. So I was constantly having a fresh one. Even if continuity was wrong, I would just say, you know, I feel like wearing that black one with the red bow tie. Actually, I feel like wearing that white one. I need this tuxedo to really mimic my behavior in this scene. Even if it was just cutting away from me for a second, so someone could say a line, then cutting back to me. Of course, those who are already fans of the franchise will know this is called the Tux Flux, or the suit scramble. You were the first, but not the last, to employ such an idea, and you'll be able to see this for yourselves, listeners, if you have done as suggested in the pre-show preamble and procured a copy of the film yourself. You can look scene by scene, and you can see creasing, wear and tear, slight fraying from being under the studio lights. Barry Nelson's suit was disintegrating on screen, and that is because this is pre-Tux Flux. He wore the same suit throughout the screening. And it was a live performance, you know? He couldn't do anything about it. As we've said before, the James Bond experience is a curated one. And he was just on screen. He was sweating through that thing. It was disintegrating. There were threads unraveling. Extras were tripping over the threads and flying across the screen. You couldn't really discern what was happening. But the only thing he could do was just keep going. As Winston Churchill once said, if you're going through hell, keep going. And some have described their work on this original miniseries portrayal as a hellish nightmare, a perfect parlay into one of the first-hand accounts that we have from the time on the show. It comes, of course, from the tailor who's assigned to Barry Nelson. Listeners, throughout this series, we will be using these first-hand accounts to provide context, to use it as a magnifying glass, to inspect not only the end product, but the process of creation. The tailor, perhaps you would like to speak her words to our audience. Just for some context here, Rupert, you're doing a great job, but I think that the people need to be reminded that people in the 50s were a little smaller. Barry Nelson was five foot eight. That was pretty much average height for a man back then. The tailor received some notes from a PA 
and they were backwards because that PA had dyslexia. And so it read eight foot five. Mm. And so her quote is, I'd never thought that they would cast a man that large in a performance. I was going to make the tuxedo anyway. I believe, George, that this is exactly the reason why he is not in the tuxedo to which we have ascribed such great remembrance and reverence. That eight foot tall tuxedo is still on display in the James Bond Museum here in Lancaster, England. Of course, once Mr. Nelson attempted to wear it, he was like a small child in his father's suit clothes, floundering about on stage, yelling frantically, uh, I can't see, I can't breathe, the tux, it's too large. What happened was they couldn't do anything else. They couldn't get this tailor to make a new tuxedo right before the performance. It had to be live. It had to be there. And so they just went out to the men's warehouse and they bought a suit. And I guarantee it, nobody liked the way he looked. A perfect line to end on, George, for now. Let's take a break, hear a word from our sponsors, and then come back better and bonder than ever in the second half of today's episode. Greetings, listeners. This is Rupert Carmichael with an exciting announcement from the PBS and the BBC. Based on the projected success of Building a Better Bond, my employers are already in production of a brand new audio miniseries. Beyond Vocal Dome details the evolving accent of one Mel Gibson. Raised in Sydney, Australia, Gibson's move to Hollywood catalyzed a phraseological shift from down-under dialect to American Argo. Join linguist Theodore Fladwell as he analyzes every Gibson film from Lethal Weapon to Daddy's Home 2 in order to trace the fading lingo of a rising star. All one episodes available this fall. G'day, it's Laz here coming to you with a special offer only available to listeners of Building a Better Bond. The most common complaint I get from fans of the franchise is, I love watching every movie, but I wish you were in more. So, with the help of PBS and the BBC, I've overdubbed every James Bond film and superimposed my face on the actor playing the character I made famous. This exclusive box set also features commentary by yours truly on every movie so you can hear my take on every take. Go to bbc.com and type in offer code LAZ to receive two Australian dollars off this official box set with the only bloke who could make Bond better. And now, back to the show. All right, George, we're back, and we're back in the room, and now, though it pains me to do so, I believe we must talk about the elephant in the room. I didn't realize there was an actual elephant in this room. Do we have uh, an animal guy on set here? I, of course, am referencing, metaphorically, George, the other Casino Royale, and no, I don't mean the other, other Casino Royale, which is, of course, the 2007 Daniel Craig film. I am speaking of the David Niven movie. I am definitely trekking with you. I thought that it was going to be an animal guy that came out here. I really don't like elephants for uh, unrelated reasons, and so I'm happy that we're going to be talking about Bond still. We're still doing the same show, right? That's right. Not to step on your toes, but I think audiences everywhere are well aware of your stance on elephants. I tweet heavily about it, so I, I would hope they are, but maybe we should just get through this. Get through this is the right word for it, George, because we are speaking 
tangentially about one of the darkest moments in the Bond timeline. Now, though Barry Nelson's portrayal, and we'll get more into this in a moment, was not the sterling silver of the silver screen that we had grown to appreciate over time. It was a humble beginning, but at least it was made in good faith. That cannot be said of the 1967 portrayal of James Bond by David Niven. Of all things, it was, listeners, brace yourselves, a parody. <coughs> George, I'm, I'm sorry George, about that. in the future, please use the provided sick bags uh, next to your chair. I was able to use my suitcase. I'd unpacked it earlier. My mistake, of course. Use your own effects for whatever purposes that you wish. But your aversion to hearing those words are well met and well received, and I think echoed by many fans of the James Bond franchise because it shares a name and a place in pre. Bond history with the film that we are discussing, perhaps it would be diligent of us to at least address why we don't address this iteration of Casino Royale. I think that's a great point. This is something that always comes up in online forums and in lists about the best parts of Bond and the worst parts of Bond. And we figured that we don't want to dwell on something that's a spoof or a parody. But for all those fucking nerds out there, who will bring this up if we don't address it. This is for you guys. This is for the people who come up to me at Comic-Con and say, oh, on, on level nine of GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64, can you actually get through the artillery room without the golden gun? And just come on, guys, I get it. You really like Bond, but just back off. Just let me sit there and get paid and leave. Am I making any sense here, Rupert? You are making sense in a general way, George. I am not certain why you are personally at Comic-Con. Part of a contract thing that I wasn't able to get out of. Sometimes I just play James Bond as a prop. Now, I don't want to interact with people, but I'll stand there. So sometimes I go. Perhaps it is a failure in my own understanding, George. James Bond is not a comic book character. No, but he's a, a literary character. You know, you can be involved in Comic-Con for that. Mm, mm-hmm. No, I'm not going to explain to you the ins and outs of Comic-Con, Rupert. You know, we all know them. My main point is there are some dweebs and losers out there who just want to point out every flaw of a franchise. This little tidbit about David Niven is for them. Dweebs, losers, fools, apt descriptions for the cast of this cast out in the James Bond franchise. Listeners, you might be surprised to know there was more than one portrayal of Bond, not only sacrilegious in its own system, but also artificially inflating the number of actors who can claim to be said to play Bond, much like Samwise Gamgee gets into Elvish Valhalla on a technicality. These individuals now can forever claim the prestige of Bondhood. Have they earned it? Tell me this. That's a resounding no. I can't tell you how many James Bond best actor lists I've read where people rank Peter Sellers in there and Woody Allen. Guys, I'm not going to be on the same fucking list as Woody Allen for playing James Bond. Get him off of there. I should point out that I'm always going to be on the top of those lists, but I don't want to share the same list with these people. They weren't Bond. They were just in a spoof of Bond. It's apples and oranges, you know, you can't equate the two. Well said. This is, of course... The reason behind your own personal crusade in the matter, an organization called LARP, List, Attribution, Respect, Presentation. And Preservations, two-piece. That's right, the L-A-R-P-P. You have led single-handedly the effort to clean up 
the world of list making to make sure that technical inclusions or corner cases, loopholes are closed. It's a partnership that I've embarked on with BuzzFeed. We've really tried to clean up all the James Bond lists of the world. You know, the internet is definitely a, a source of free media. You could be on there, but we want to make sure that if you have a James Bond actor related list, that it's only going to be the core actors. And then Barry Nelson, because, you know, we'll throw him a bone there, but not David Niven. Not Peter Sellers, not Woody Allen. These people played a character named James Bond simply because of a snafu with film rights. They couldn't even use the actual story. All they had was the name and the title of the movie. So if that constitutes a movie or if that constitutes a spoof, I don't know. I'm not an expert screenwriter, although, you know, Rupert, I have dabbled a little bit in screenwriting, mostly in the fictional vampire teen genre. George, of course, I know this very well as a lifelong fan of all the media that you produce, but to those who aren't familiar, why don't you shed a little light, dangerous as that is for the genre, on your vampire teen young adult fiction? Well, as you know, it hasn't quite taken off yet. It hasn't gotten off the ground, so I can't divulge too much, but the series is called Aussie Bites. It's about a group of Australian high schoolers, and, and they all go to the same high school, but they're also vampires. And I'm trying to work out if there are werewolves involved. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I kind of jumped ahead of myself and thought of myself as the headmaster. Uh, if, if it were to ever be a film franchise, which I think it will be, and, you know, I was also dabbling with what if I'm James Bond as the headmaster? How does that work? How does that work? Indeed, questions best answered by the pages that you will write. I've read an early version of the book. I have to say, captivating. I love the opening lines of the book. Oi, that's one spooky Sheila uttered by your character, the headmaster, who has, I would say, 96 to 97% of all the speaking roles in the book. Yeah, the main critique I've gotten is that if it's a, a book about teenage vampires in Australia, why am I the focal point? But you gotta sell it with something. Absolutely. As they say, sex sells, which is why I believe most of the first nine chapters are simply retrospections by the headmaster on the romantic cavortations of his younger years. Yeah, they're mostly just sexual escapades that the headmaster had and how he ended up being the headmaster of the school. Let's just say the words headmaster come up earlier than that. Right, you are, Rupert. Now, we've spoken about technicality. That is why we had to take this sojourn into speaking about the unspeakable. But a different type of tech is the subject of our next segment. Of course, as requested, this is us moving on to the third T. So if you're keeping score at home, listeners, cross off tucks and cross off talk and move on to tech, because that's where we are now. One of the most famous and beloved parts of the James Bond franchise is the gadgetry, the sophisticated near future breakthroughs in spy tech and this was no different in the very first portrayal though i think listeners like most things about barry nelson's first foray into bondhood it's not exactly what we expect george do you care to expound what i think you're alluding to rupert is what you're expecting is just anything cool but barry nelson has nothing they didn't write in anything but a gun for his character the only tech in the entire show is presented by a villain. Villains with tech is a trope that will eventually become a mainstay, but again, it's Bond's tech that always prevails. Mm -hmm. Not so in the original Casino Royale. The villain that has the tech, it's a gun that's concealed in a cane. And you know, what, what kind of a geriatric piece of technology is that? That's the best they could come up with. The cane gun, a oft-neglected exhibit at the Bond Museum in Lancaster. And for good reason, it was 
crude. It was lame. It was a cane. You know, people care about this cane so little that sometimes it, in the museum in Lancaster, it just ends up in one of those bins that umbrellas and canes are in. And somebody might walk away with it accidentally and then bring it back a, a couple weeks later and say, oh, I accidentally stole this piece of garbage from your museum. Here you go. Yes, yeah, so about once every six to eight months, Lancaster will have to file a police report. One of their patrons eventually accidentally wounds someone lightly with a very low-powered projectile that can still be fired from the cane. You got people accidentally stealing the speech of merchandise if you were able to steal anything from the james bond museum rupert if you got your hands on a piece of technology you'd probably keep it it would probably be pretty cool but people steal this thing and they want to bring it back dangerous and dangerously uncool the cane gun marks a milk toast foray into what will later become a resplendent world of near future gadgetry instead we must speak of the humble beginnings and humbler still Barry Nelson's own arsenal. He, of course, wields only a 9mm pistol. That was the best they could come up with. And when you're thinking of the audience who was watching this show, this was in Cold War America. People are scared. People are watching television as an escape. And if they start seeing secret agents with different types of arsenals and different types of tech running around, then they're going to get scared. And so they couldn't really do anything for Barry Nelson. The other thing that I think is critical and crucial to all James Bond is... MI6 and the Q branch, you know, that those are the people that actually make his gadgets. That wasn't even a part of this film. No, that, of course, was left on the cutting room floor. The U.S. military attempted to consult on the set of the original Casino Royale TV representation. Now, what we got in the end was a carnival of discarded military gadgetry, all they would spare because, of course, anything actually interesting was reserved for the Russians. Now, I know, George, that you've been privy to all of the secrets of Bondhood, and this is no exception. What sort of things were supposed to make it into this movie that inevitably got cut? There was a lot of things that were better than the cane gun, I can tell you that much. A lot of different clothing items that turned into guns, a lot of different guns that turned into clothing items. So you got shoe guns, you got gun shoes, you got cuff links that are laser beams. Interestingly enough, you had a hat that you could throw, and that came up much later on in the James Bond franchise. So they had all these ideas, but they couldn't use anything. Yes, a hat you can throw was one of the few pieces of tech that did make it into the final cut. Of course, only represented by Barry tossing his hat harmlessly onto a hat rack. Yet to figure out how to exactly weaponize it, but hat as a projectile, that's something that is not at all an odd job for this first Bond. Things that didn't make it into the televised version, though they did appear live. A thrown shoe, a jacket thrown over the shoulder, a back thrown out as he attempts to lift a desk, other thrown things. Throwing was very instrumental to this first Bond. And it was pretty obvious because it was live and they were making all these edits right before, because the meeting with the military happened right before the airing of the show, Barry Nelson would walk over as if he was about to take out an interesting weapon, but they just had a cardboard box with a question mark on it. And then he would have to pick that up and sort of use it as if it were the weapon it was supposed to be that was edited out. A crude and primitive version of what would later be CGI stand-in props. Pierce Brosnan, a later Bond, famous for this, sometimes producing comedic or ill-fitted scenes. This, much more so than that. Holding a white box with a question mark drawn on it in magic marker. There's not much magic in that. It made people even more scared. You know, what's in the box? Why isn't he taking anything out of the box? What is this mystery box? Maybe in future James Bond friends, 
franchises, they can use that to their advantage. But in 1950s America, it just wasn't the case. It wasn't the right time. But I think it is the right time, George, to stir up or maybe shake up. It's all into your interpretation. As we move to that final tea, the tea within martini, the drinks, the cocktail that is so iconic to James Bond. Now, Laz, I know, can I call you Laz? Can I call her Rupert? I would be honored. By the way, are you related to that cartoon bear, Rupert? Is on Nickelodeon. No, uh, not only do I not know his proposed origin story, but also he is a cartoon bear who is not related to live human beings. In Australia, it's opposite. Do you mean to say that in Australia, live human beings can be related to fictional portrayals? Oh, yeah. It makes Texas a nightmare, but you can be related to a cartoon character, sure. Truly the land of possibility. Now, let's land on the possibility that... The original James Bond martini had its roots in an American hand. You're right and you're wrong, Rupe. It's okay if I call you Rupe, correct? I prefer it. So you're right and you're wrong. This drink was in the hands of James Bond as an American, but the drink itself wasn't the correct drink. Mm, That can't be good for a score. Tell me, Laz, what was in that glass? Just to clear things up. For you listeners at home, we aren't going to actually score them numerically. This is just kind of a turn of phrase. We don't want to make anyone feel bad that they got a six or a seven or whatever on these things. Of course, Rupert and I are diligently writing all this down, but we're not going to reveal it to you guys. That's right. And of note, six or seven is the score that you settled on here. We just said we weren't going to reveal it. Now you've revealed it. I just want to give listeners a little bit of context. This, of course, is a score out of a hundred. So to this, no scale is truly worthy of such a nuanced discussion. Instead, we will speak holistically, as Laz said, to the merits and the detriments, the strengths and the weaknesses of each bond. This weakness is different than the weakness that most bonds have for vodka, vermouth, and an olive. And when you're talking about scoring, and when you're talking about measurements, you really have to give a lot of precedence to this teeny category. I paused there in case any of your listeners wanted to laugh at that turn of phrase I did there. But this, the martini that wasn't was actually a scotch and water. That's what Barry Nelson ordered as James Bond. Can you imagine that? Rupert, if you're watching a James Bond film today and James Bond came on the screen, I assume you're picturing me right now. As I often do, George. If I came on the screen and said, bartender, give me a scotch and a water, what would your reaction be? Are you familiar, George, with the sound of nails on a chalkboard? Are you familiar with the feeling of when you're biting into something and you your teeth hit the tin of the fork? Ooh. Yes. It sounds wrong. It feels wrong. There is a incongruity to it, as if it is out of harmony with the universe itself. A scotch and water, that's the drink of a farmer who has stumbled into a bar by accident and attempts to fit in. It's not the drink of a sophisticated secret agent. No, not at all. I would argue that James Bond made martinis what they are, in the glass, with the vermouth, with the olive. You can't picture a martini without picturing James Bond. And when you picture Barry Nelson, you just get scotch and a watered-down performance. I'll commend you personally on that turn of phrase, Laz. Now, It almost bears disqualifying Barry for this transgression of mixmanship, but I think what would be better served for the purposes of our discussion is to talk about how we transitioned away from the scotch and water into the martini. Of course, Ian Fleming's original representation spoke of a martini. Why instead was it the American way to blend perfectly good scotch whiskey with their iron-infested tap water? It all gets back to, unfortunately, Barry Nelson. I don't want to blame him for everything, but he was allergic to olives. Yes, of course. 
he being Macedonian in heritage, this is the reason why he had to flee Greece to the United States. He found himself hiding from his olive allergy most of his life, a source of great shame to him. How cruel is irony to face him with that same prejudice in his role of a lifetime? To his credit, he did try to get over the olive allergy. You know, the little swords that you stick in olives? Yes, the tiny skewers, yes. He would have his assistants in rehearsal skewer olives and then take them out and poke him. Sort of like how a flu shot gives you a little bit of the flu. One must commend in many things Barry Nelson's attempt. In every way, he was a man with a machete facing the harshness of the Amazon jungle, an unknown frontier that must be trailblazed. Has he done it elegantly? No. Has he done it delicately? Certainly not. Has he done it with any sort of lasting grace or notoriety? I think history can say no. But at the same time, it was important what he did, wasn't it, George? One thing I might bring up is it was on television. It didn't actually have to be a real martini, and it didn't have to be a real olive. They could have used a prop, but instead, they wanted to do away with the martini and give him a scotch and a water and just a water glass. Mm-mm. It was an oversight that was never repeated, thankfully, in the franchise, but bears repeating that at its core, James Bond is the tale of a suave, sophisticated spy from what was once the British Empire. I think that what this gets back to is the idea of curation. Barry Nelson and the team that put Casino Royale together for Climax didn't have that ability because it was live. For instance, in a lot of my scenes in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I'll just say that again, that's James Bond ever, I was drinking a shrimp cocktail. And just through the magic of film, they turned it in to look like a martini. I just said, you know, I don't really want a martini today. I'm going to have a shrimp cocktail or I'm going to have sangria or I'm going to have a bowl of mashed potatoes. And they turned it into a martini. And you can do that when you're the top billing actor on an amazing franchise and you're the best one. But with Barry Nelson, nobody knows who this guy is. Nobody knows what this show is. So they didn't have the luxury to do that. Such a good point, George. And in many ways, the people who made this first Bond... And Barry himself, they were shooting in the dark, and not with a golden gun, with a gun made of bronze or brass or some other crass material. It was an attempt, attempt in good faith, but still a failure in many ways. Thankfully, though, this first foible was forgotten by the American public, who were ready for a more faithful adaptation just a few years later. We'll get to that another time. But first, George, if you would, care to share any last words on Barry Nelson's first portrayal. I would love to, Rupert. What we've talked about here is that although Barry Nelson and Casino Royale was wrong, at least it started James Bond on a trajectory. It was the wrong one, but at least it was a trajectory nonetheless. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, George. I'll finish off here with an anecdote. When I was a teenager, I worked at a restaurant in Goulburn, where I'm from in Australia, called Didgery Diner. And I know it's hard to picture George Lazenby flipping burgers or waiting tables or whatever, but I had humble beginnings, and I think that's what makes me so great. Didgery Diner was the first restaurant to advertise what we called in Australia rapid food. Their whole thing was great taste at great haste. People would come in there and they were expecting food within seconds. The problem was we didn't do that at all. It was terrible. People would come in, they would order a sandwich, and we'd say, okay, in a couple weeks we can get that to you. Fill out your address, your name, we'll try and do it. It was, in a way, false advertising, but the idea was there. And in that time, on a business trip, coincidentally, serendipitously, whatever you want to call it, the McDonald's brothers came to Didgeridiner. They saw the idea 
or what we call rapid food. They would later more eloquently call it fast food. They came up with the concept for what is arguably the most popular restaurant in the entire world. And so because they knew everything not to do, they were able to be successful. So my point here that I'm going to leave you with and that I'm going to leave you listeners with is that sometimes it takes someone doing everything wrong first to do everything right the second go around. And in the case of something as amazing as James Bond, it had to be really fucking wrong the first time. Those are words to live by. And they are words that the franchise did live by. Thankfully, not being passed over by the American public in years to come. Next episode, we talk about how, like a phoenix, Sean Connery rose from the ashes and audiences said yes to Dr. No. I would say that after Sean Connery, I may have been a bigger phoenix rising above him. Thank you, George. And thank you, listeners. Please join us again next week as we continue to build a better bond. Thank you. On behalf of the PBS and the BBC, I am Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. (laughs) Thank you.